Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, the book of Revelation, chapter 11. As we opened Revelation chapter 11 last time, I mentioned that this was a pretty difficult and complex chapter. And indeed, it is especially challenging when we take the time to actually analyze and and, and question the point or the symbolic meaning or the literal interpretation of, of all the numbers that are given to us. See, it's common in Western Christianity, especially among so-called evangelical Christians, to make some broad assumptions about what these numbers mean. However, in reality, these assumptions can generally be traced to the tacit acceptance of the pre-tribulation dispensational doctrine and its offshoots that were only established in the early 1800s. And such an approach was actually unknown to the early church fathers. So we tend to see the numbers as we're reading, but in another sense we tend to just read right over them without too much consideration as to their their connection, their order, their purpose. And I suppose this may be because to examine them a little more closely could be a bit tedious and perhaps give us more information than we want. Or it could shoot holes through a particular interpretation that you're already settled and confident in. My conundrum is just how much information to present to you in our attempt to discern how to understand these numbers. Why are numbers important in the Bible, and especially in Revelation? Because they go beyond generalities and principles, and they give us more concrete and tangible information in our quest for understanding what's in store for us, what's in store for the world, and a not-too-distant future. However, my goal is not necessarily to provide firm answers to all the questions that naturally arise from reading a Bible book that's mostly about prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. Rather, my goal is to allow God's Word to open up before us like a flower with its many petals that unfolds to reveal its complete beauty step by step. And then, only so far as the season that we are in will allow it. So it seems that we have little choice but to be patient in order to discover the intent of these numbers and where and to what they'll apply. So I'm going to need all of your focus and attention today, but I think in the end it's going to be worth your while. At the end of last week's lesson, I told you that for the sake of not trying to become too confusing, that we should assume that from a broad view, the biblical use of the time periods of 42 months, three and one half years, and 1,260 days should be seen as more or less equal to one another. And at that time I showed you that the common statement among Bible commentators um, is uh, on a Jewish calendar month is 30 days. And therefore, a Jewish calendar year is 12 months times 30 days, which equals 360 days. And this is not technically accurate. It's not so. Hebrew months are based on lunar cycles. And that's ordained by God. An actual lunar cycle is 29 and one-half days. So a Hebrew month ought to be 29 and one-half days. But since you can't have months with half days in them, as a practical solution 
the Jews alternated between a month with 29 days and then the next month would be set at 30 days. And when you average 29 and 30 together, you get 29 and a half. So a Jewish calendar was not a calendar with 12 months of equal 30 days each, but rather it alternated between 29-day month and 30-day month, such in the course of a 12-month lunar year, you wound up with 6 months of 29 days, 6 months of 30 days. However, that equals 354 days in a year, not 360. And yet, that isn't the full story of the Jewish calendar either. <clears throat> Long before John's era, the Jews learned that out of practicality, they had to adjust their 12-month lunar calendars based on the cycle of the sun. That is, just as in modern times where we define the year as the time it takes for the earth to make one complete orbit around the sun, 365 days plus a, plus a fraction of a day. So the Jews were aware of this reality as well. And since a lunar year is 354 days and a solar year is 365 days, then there's an approximately 11 days difference between the two. Simple math. A lunar year is 11 days shorter than a solar year. So clearly a calendar based on cycles of the moon only will not line up with a calendar based on cycles of the sun. And since the seasons of the year, spring, summer, winter, fall, are dependent upon what? The solar cycle, not the lunar cycle, then the Hebrews had to make adjustments to their lunar calendars to keep them in tune with the sun cycle so that you could keep them in tune with the seasons. Now, I'm not going to get deeply into the variations of how this was done, but only so far as to say that at regular intervals they would add some extra days to their lunar calendars and even add an extra month every few years in order to keep their lunar calendars aligned with the seasons. Why is that so important to them? Because the agricultural aspect of their society was of course dependent upon the seasons of the year, not on moon cycles, because they have no bearing on seasons. And even more, several of the seven biblical feasts commanded by God were, at their core, agricultural festivals. And they celebrated the harvesting of certain crops. And these crops grew and ripened at different times of the year. Now since most of the biblical feasts are assigned actual calendar dates in the Torah that govern exactly when they're to be celebrated, it wouldn't work very well if, for instance, the summertime wheat crop harvest celebration came during a time when the lunar calendar date for the biblical feast that celebrated it, which is the Feast of First Fruits, Bikrim, actually fell in the wintertime. That is, the calendar, based on lunar cycles, says it's time for the biblical feast that revolves around special offerings of the wheat crop harvest, which is based on solar cycles, but due to differences between the solar and the lunar years, in actuality, it's in the winter season. And the wheat harvest happened a long time ago. So what do you do? Thus, there is both a practical and a religious need for synchronizing the lunar months to the yearly sun cycle to keep the agricultural seasons in tune with the biblical feast dates. That makes sense? All of these complex calendar issues and a lot more plays a role when as 21st century Bible students we attempt to understand just how to comprehend 
these several numbers about the passing of time that we find in Revelation, especially about the end of days. So I want to begin by showing you the underlying reason for why Revelation presents the numbers of 42 months, three and one half days or years, because he uses both, and 1,260 days as it does. And it is that they were following a long-standing Hebrew literary convention that we find in many places throughout the Bible. It's not rare. The question is, why use all those different ways of expressing the passing of time if from a practical sense they're all to be taken to mean exactly the same length of time? That is, on the surface, why say 42 months one time, 1,260 days the next time, three and one half years the next time, if they all mean precisely the same thing? Why do that? It just sounds like it's only three different ways of expressing the same thing. Well, see, there's this Hebrew literary convention that I'm referring to that's called chiasm. And to be clear, this is not a Hebrew invention. Nor was it used only by Hebrews. Nor is it found only in the Bible. But it is used regularly in the Bible because the writers were Hebrews and it was a commonly used form of expression among Hebrews. And then when we know that, it helps us to understand why certain words were chosen. Why were things expressed the way they were? And when we know those things, then we don't try to assign a passage that's using this literary, literary technique of chiasm a meaning, a special meaning, nor do we create an emphasis on a particular word because that was never intended. A chiasm, also called a chiasmus, is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented to you. Then it's repeated but in exact reverse order. The result is like this mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in a passage. That is a mirror, when you look in a mirror what happens? You get a reverse image each idea is then connected to its reflection, if you would, by a repeated word, often in a related form. Now when trying to explain the structure of a chiasm, it's usually it's through a series of letters. In other words, when I'm, a scholar is trying to say, okay everybody, here's how it works. They'll use letters to explain it. Each letter just representing a new idea. So there's idea A, idea B, idea C, whatever the idea is. For example, the structure ABBA refers to two ideas, idea A, idea B, that are first written down, A and B, then they're repeated in reverse order, B then A. Simple enough. Often a chiasm will actually include another idea, we'll call it idea X in the middle of that repetition. Then you have what the scholars call an ABXBA structure. In this type of chiasm, the two ideas A and B are written down and then repeated in reverse order, but a third idea is inserted before the repetition. Okay, By virtue of its position, the idea that's inserted, that's what's being emphasized. The thing that's in the middle. That's what's important. Now, I realize this sounds horribly complicated. It's not. See, we use chiasm in our everyday English language. We just don't call it that or recognize it that. The common saying, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's chiasm. The words going and tough are used in the first half of the saying, then they're repeated in, verse or in reverse order. In the second half of the saying, the structure then is A, B, B, A. 
Another example of a chiasm, also with the ABBA structure, is Benjamin Franklin's axiom. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. It's a chiasm. Other chiasms can be a lot more complex that even span entire poems. What can make chiasms so difficult to spot in the Bible is because of the standard use of chapter and verse markings. That is, especially as concerns the way a Bible book is divided up into chapters, although it wasn't originally created that way, our minds operate in such a way as to subconsciously put a start sign at the beginning of a chapter and a stop sign at the end of that same chapter so we don't always recognize this original just continuing flow of thought that proceeds just from one what we call chapter to the next but it's not it's not divided it's not stopped it just continues but when we remove those arbitrary chapter markings and just read a Bible book as one continuous flow of thought we find all sorts of intended connections that are otherwise disguised. Now as concerns are matter why did I tell you all this, right? As concerns are matter of the numbers 42 months, 3 and a half years, 1,260 days when we find them in the order that they occur in Revelation starting with their first appearance by the way in Revelation chapter 11 we see that in fact the author John used the literary technique of chiasm to present them here's how it works John created an ABC CBA chiasm using those numbers Put it on a chart so it could be a little bit easier for you to follow. So, the number 42 is found in Revelation 11.2. The number 1,260 is found in 11.3. The number 3.5 is found in 11.9. Then the mirror image of that order begins in Revelation 11.11. Three and a half is found in 1111. 1260 is found in 12.6. 42 is found in 13.5. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Okay? Just a chiasm. Common literary structure. It's not magic. And by the way, it's not some mysterious Bible code. It's just a normal, customary literary structure that Hebrews, Jews used in their thinking. In their writing, it is intended to be noticed and a careful Jewish student reading John's Apocalypse would have caught it. What we must understand is that words and numbers were chosen to make the chiasm operate properly. Just as when creating a poem Words are chosen as much for their ability to rhyme as they are for their actual meaning. The use of chiasm has much to do with providing a memorization technique. Since most of how the contents of the Bible passed around in Bible days was orally. Not by reading. So the underlying reason these numbers are even presented in the way and presented in the order that we find them in this section of Revelation has to do with making them fit into a literary structure called a chiasm. But naturally there's more. If you look at the use of the numbers in this chiastic structure of Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13, Sometimes the numbers refer to months. Sometimes the numbers refer to days. And when we write down not just the number, but also the corresponding name of the time period, days, months, years, whatever, with it we get 
42 months, 1,260 days, three and one half days, and then a mirror image, we get, starting in Revelation 11, 11, three and a half days, 1,260 days, 42 months. So month, days, 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 months. You see it? This is a well-constructed chiasm in every respect, and it cannot be doubted that it's just mere coincidence. Now, as is my con contention, despite all I just told you, we need to avoid getting overly technical or precise when defining the lengths of a day, month, and year as we find them recorded in the Bible. For one reason, calendars operated slightly differently depending on if one was a Jew living in the Holy Land or if one was a Jew living out in the Diaspora, some other foreign country. If we assume that out in the Diaspora in John's day, which is where he was, remember he was on the island of Patmos, on the Mediterranean Sea, the Jews generally used 30 days to define a month, and there is evidence they did because it was just too complex to try to operate under a strict Hebrew calendar in a Gentile world without some minor compromise. And if we assume that therefore their unadjusted lunar calendars gave them a 360 day year, then the numbers 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days all line up as meaning exactly the same thing. But are we to take these as absolute precise numbers? Perhaps. <laughs> However, I think these are not meant to be precise, but rather as, if you would, round numbers. Let me give you an example of why I think that. The Bible tells us that the Jews were in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Does that mean 70 years to the day, to the hour, to the minute? And if the answer is yes, then exactly what days were counted as the beginning day and the ending day of their exile? The 70 years could be exact according to a certain calendar, but that doesn't mean it would precisely agree with another calendar. Couldn't we say that they were in exile for 70 years, but maybe by the calendar we use today, it was 69 years and 11 calendar months, or 70 calendar years and one calendar month. See, in our modern era, we have dates that we choose to commemorate the starts and ends of wars. But those dates depend on exactly when one chooses to define the moment that a war began and a war ended. For example, World War II was really two wars. One with Germany and one with and its allies and one with Japan and its allies and they each started and ended on different dates. The war with Germany began as an intra-European war before the USA even entered the fracas. And during that time, Japan was already battling China and other countries before, the, before Pearl Harbor. Then how about the dates to commemorate the ending of the war? Was it when German generals began to surrender their battle units? Or was it when a former, formal ceremony occurred? Or was it something else? You see the issue here with trying to get too precise. So as for God's timing, it's very hard to know exactly when God sees temporal events on earth beginning and ending. You think he's got one of our nice calendars up there? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think he feels obligated. It's also hard to know exactly how he defines those time periods. You know, it's one thing for God to announce a particular and specific calendar date 
as he does with most of his biblical feasts. Or announce a particular day of the week as the appointed day of rest, Shabbat, the seventh of the days. It's quite another when he announces longer periods of time that don't really have well-defined beginnings and endings. That is, no dates are provided. Even more, is he giving us these time frames in terms of a purely lunar calendar? A purely solar calendar? A Hebrew calendar? A Roman calendar? Or what? And if it is one of these calendars, from exactly what era is that based on, in what geographical location, because all that makes a difference. Is he thinking in terms of the extent of time that will pass when a specific event is supposed to occur and so the numbers generally define the beginning and the completion of that event? That that's his point? See, I think it's better that for our purposes we take these numbers as closely approximate in the same way a doctor says, don't worry, your cold will be over in 10 days. Maybe it'll be 9, maybe it'll be 11, but who would quibble? But by saying 10 days, we also instinctively know he doesn't mean it as absolutely precise. And you're looking at your watch, come on, 10th day. Although, neither does he mean to indicate as little as three days or as much as 15 or 20. So as we watch, in a practical way, as we watch for these events of revelation to come about, I don't think we should mark the days off on our calendar and then be surprised if the 1,260 on our calendars turns out to be 1,251 or 1,268. Nor should we assume that three and one-half years means precisely 1,277 and one-half days by our modern calendars. Goodness, do you realize there could even be a leap year in there somewhere? Nor should we necessarily seek to convert 1,260 days as defined in John's era to the Julian dating system. See, this exhaustive precision of numbers and time that Westerners seek in our day is simply not what the biblical point is, in my opinion. But neither are the time periods expressed by the numbers that we read about Revelation wildly indeterminate nor are they symbolic as opposed to literal they may be both symbolic and literal okay now we've dealt with numbers now let's deal with that phrase time, times and half a time Found in Revelation 12.14, the complete Jewish Bible translates it as a season, two seasons, and half a season. Now, I think while technically one could make a case for using the word season instead of time, I think it just confuses the matter. Since either way it alludes to the same words found in Daniel's chapter 7 and 12. In the New Testament, the Greek for time is kairos. And it means the due measure, a measure of time, a large or small portion of time, or a season. So then, this term is quite general. It's not specific. In Daniel 7, where this phrase is first used, the word is idan. But that's because it's Aramaic. And it means time, non-specific time, just like kairos in Greek, just not some non-specific time. The question I think we ought to ask 
especially of Daniel's chapter 7 and 12, is why that phrase is expressed in such a mysterious way. What? What? A time times and half a time. I mean, why not just use numbers? They had plenty of numbers back then. They weren't short of numbers. Why not just use numbers? Instead of this ambiguous word description. I don't know why, for sure. But, my speculation is that God was fine with giving Daniel a mysterious hint because he wasn't ready yet to get more specific. But in John's era, he was ready to reveal some more. You know, sometimes it is possible to let the Bible define itself. And I think we can probably do that with the phrase a time times and half a time. If we look at Revelation 12.5 and 12.6, I realize we're ahead of ourselves at this moment. Okay, We read this. She gave birth to a son, a male child, the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. But her child was snatched up to God in his throne and she fled into the desert where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be taken care of for 1,260 days. Later on in that same chapter, Revelation chapter 12, we read this in verses 13 and 14. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he went in pursuit of the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly to her place in the desert where she is taken care of for a season and two seasons and half a season away from the serpent's presence. So we have verses 5 and 6 directly connected to verses 13 and 14. And the two passages are absolutely speaking of the same event. In verses 5 and 6, the time that the woman, Israel, will be cared for is 1,260 days. And in verses 13 and 14, the same woman is said to be cared for for a season, two seasons, and half a season. Or, as it actually says it, in its most literal, for a time, times, and half a time. Now, of course, it depends on the Bible version you use, but... Verses 5 and 6 tell us, then, that time times and half a time of verses 13 and 14 equals 1,260 days. That said, sometimes a number can be literal, but also carry a much larger symbolic meaning. Now remember, the number 3 and 1 half is half of the divine and ideal number seven. Now while seven indicates perfect wholeness, the number three and one half indicates something that is imperfect and not whole. So I want to offer a possibility that when three and one half is offered as a specific number, it is meant to symbolize imperfection or a process that has been interrupted and not completed but when a phrase a time times and half a time is used there was kind of a substitute for three and a half it intentionally avoids assigning the specific number three and a half because while the number three and a half has an understood symbolic sense the phrase time times and half a time has no symbolic sense at least no symbolic sense that we're currently aware of so in Revelation 12:14, when the woman Israel finally does go into the desert to be protected for a time, times and half a time, even if that passing a time might amount to three and a half years, this does not also symbolize something that is imperfect. 
not whole. That's why this mysterious phrase, time, times, and half, and half a time, is used, but the actual number, three and one half, or even 1,260 for days, is avoided. Now that's my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. Well, now that we've finished talking about these numbers, <laughs> and how we ought to think about them, I want to resume with our study of Revelation chapter 11. But I think it's best we reread this in smaller chunks okay, as, as we go along. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. And we're just going to read the first six verses. Re Revelation chapter 11. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1542. 1542. Okay. I was given a measuring rod like a stick and told, get up, measure the temple of God and the altar and count how many people are worshipping there. But the court outside the temple, leave that out. Don't measure it. Because it has been given to the Goyim, Gentiles, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Also, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two menorahs standing before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone tries to do them harm, fire comes out of their mouth and consumes their enemies. Yes, if anyone tries to harm them, that's how he must die. They have the authority to shut up the sky so that no rain falls during the period of their prophesying. Also, they have the authority to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, first of all, I'm going to remind you from last week that the temple that John is measuring is not the same one that Ezekiel was observing being measured in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Two different temples. The temple John is measuring is what I would label as the third temple. It's the one that will be built in the near future before Christ returns. Very likely at the behest of the man of sin who will be revealed as the Antichrist. The temple in Ezekiel is what I call the millennial temple. It will be built according to God's plan and it will essentially be Yeshua's palace. It will come after. It will replace the third temple. Now since the third temple is going to come as a result of a human political compromise between the government of Israel and a man inspired by Satan who later turns against them we're talking about the Antichrist then we get this notation that Gentiles are going to trample down the holy city for 42 months now to better understand this passage let's talk a little bit about the outer court in the temple that in Herod's day was called the court of the Gentiles. From a far view, the temple and its grounds were to be fashioned after the pattern of the wilderness tabernacle. The wilderness tab tabernacle was not to be a place for Gentiles. It was only for God's chosen the Israelites. Gentiles, even should they want to, would not have been allowed entrance into the tabernacle courts. Therefore, the temple was also supposed to have been a place only for Israelites, not for Gentiles. But when Herod extensively remodeled and expanded the temple that had been built by Nehemiah and Zerubbabel after the Babylonian exile, 
Herod also expanded greatly the outer temple courtyard and Gentiles were then invited to come in and see the greatness and lavishness of the temple that Herod built. It was so magnificent that the temple was considered one of the eight wonders of the world and Gentiles came from all over the Roman Empire to visit it the same way people from, come from all over the world to visit Disney World in Florida. See, we read in the New Testament about how upset even the average Holy Land Jew was about the hundreds of thousands of Gentiles that came to visit Jerusalem every year. Now, although these Gentiles generally meant no harm, they were just virtually tourists, the most zealous and militant Jews were outraged that these Gentiles were even allowed inside the temple grounds even though they were restricted to the court of the Gentiles. So, the zealots regularly started riots on account of this. This arrangement was never supposed to have occurred. It was nothing more than a compromise with the illegitimate priesthood and a political accommodation to please Herod. It caused such constant trouble that a garrison of Roman soldiers was stationed nearby to interrupt these disturbances before they got too out of hand. And what we find in the Temple of John's vision is that there is an outer courtyard and Gentiles will once again be allowed in. However, the main concern is that the amount of Gentiles is going to be so great and will no doubt have such an expanded role in running the, of the temple and the governing of Jerusalem, here called the Holy City, that God and John view it as Gentiles trampling upon, defiling, not just the temple grounds, but the entire city of Jerusalem. This will go on for 42 months meaning that at the end of this time period something's going to happen to change that arrangement. What that is, we're not told yet. Now apparently during this same time period two people suddenly appear who are here identified as my two witnesses and they're going to prophesy for 1,260 days. What's that equal to? 42 months, what else is it equal to? Three and a half years. Okay? And they're going to be dressed in the garments of mourning, sackcloth. That was also typical of Old Testament garb for God's anointed prophets. Is this the same 42 month time period during which the Gentiles are defiling the holy city? Probably. But now why two witnesses? One's not good enough. Why two witnesses? And please notice once again we have a number not just a word description so it's important we pay attention to that number. We have precisely two witnesses. Not one, not three, not more. Here is why. In Deuteronomy 19.15 one witness alone will not be sufficient to convict a person of any offense or sin of any kind. The matter can only be established if there are two or three witnesses testifying against them. So there's the law. God is going to judge the people and the city. God is only one witness. And these two human witnesses make the total number three. The people in the city are about to be condemned. Therefore, a minimum of two witnesses against them, plus God is the third, is required by Torah law. Verse 4 says that these two witnesses are also the two olive trees and the two menorahs standing before the Lord. What does that mean? 
This is a very strong allusion to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, starting at verse 1, we read, Then the angel that had been speaking with me returned and roused me, as if he were waking someone up from being asleep. And he asked me, What do you see? And I answered, Well, I've been looking at a menorah. It's all of gold with a bowl at its top and seven lamps on it and seven tubes leading to the seven lamps at its top. Next to it are two olive trees, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left. And I asked the angel speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel speaking with me said, Don't you know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he answered me, This is the word of Adonai to Zerubbabel. Not by force and not by power, but by my spirit, says Adonai Zebaot. What are you, you big mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become a plain. He will put the capstone in places. Everyone shouts, It's beautiful! It's beautiful! Then this message from Adonai came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands will also finish it. Then you will know that Adonai Zebaot sent me to you. For even someone who doesn't think much of a day when such minor events take place will rejoice at seeing the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So these seven are the eyes of Adonai that range about all over the earth. And I replied by asking him, Well, then what are these two olive trees on the right and left sides of the menorah? Then I asked the question again, What are these two olive branches discharging gold-colored oil through those two gold sprouts? Spouts, rather. And he replied, Don't you know what they are? And I answered, No, my lord. And he said, Those are the two who have been anointed with oil. They are standing with the Lord of all the land. So verse 5 explains that these two witnesses now are supernaturally protected by God as they observe and do the job of prophets. And what's the job of a prophet? To chastise and to warn. And while they no doubt will be warning and witnessing to Jews, hey, they're in Jerusalem. We have already been told that the city is overrun with what? Gentiles. So Gentiles too are going to be the targets of their message. Now clearly, they're not very popular among Jews or Gentiles. And as it is with all biblical prophets, that keeps them in constant danger. But if and when they are accosted, fire comes out of their mouths to destroy those who attempt to harm them. Some church doctrines say that the fire is not actual fire, but it's the word of the gospel. I doubt that. I think it's literal fire. Because it kills. It destroys them. Because these two witnesses are actually prophets, then this mention of fire cannot help but connect to Elijah. Because he similarly uh, dealt with armed messengers that had been sent by the king of Samaria to threaten him. We read back in 2 Kings 1, 5-12. The messengers returned to Akaziah and asked them, why have you come back? And they answered him, A man came to meet us. He told us to go and return to the king who sent us and tell him, Here is what Adonai says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to consult Baal-Zavuv, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will die. And he asked them, The man who came to meet you and told you these things, what kind of a man was he? says, he was a hairy man, they answered him, with a leather belt around his waist. He said, it was Elijah 
from Tishbe. So then the king sent a commander of 50 to Elijah, together with his 50 men. And Elijah was sitting on the top of a hill. And the commander climbed up to him and said, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the commander of 50, If I am in fact a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and burn you up, along with your 50 men. Fire came down from heaven. And it burned up, burned up him and his 50 men. And then the king sent another commander of 50 together with his 50 men. And he said to him, Man of God, the king says, Come down immediately. And Elijah answered them, If I am in fact a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you up along with your 50 men. Well, fire came down from heaven and it burned up him and his 50 men. Revelation 11.6 says that the two witnesses also have the authority to stop the rain from falling. That's another allusion to Elijah. 1 Kings 17.1 Elijah from Tishbe, an inhabitant of Gilead, said to Ahab, As Adonai, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there will be neither rain nor dew in the years ahead unless I say so. Finally, these two witnesses can turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with plagues. Who does that remind you of? Of course it refers to Moses doing battle for God's people with Pharaoh. So who might these two witnesses be? It would seem likely that they would be people whom God has used in the past. Although nothing prevents him from establishing two new witnesses or prophets who behave in the same manner as Elijah and Moses. So I think we'll begin the next lesson by addressing that matter.